But we're going to be transitioning this morning, and I've titled the message this morning as this, God's Got My Back. I really want us to walk away with this morning this idea and this principle of understanding that God's got our backs. God's got your back. And as we turn to Genesis 31, I just want to start off with a question. Have you ever met a group of individuals who really truly had each other's backs? Now, when I think of this idea like a group of camaraderie, I, I immediately go back to high school because in high school, uh, I got into all these like Christian bands and not like like some of these like like really just like low-key bands. Like I'm talking about like Christian metal bands, like the Christian hardcore scene. Any any people love hardcore music or metal out there? Yeah. We got we got like two metal heads, okay. You're tracking with me. So anyway, I'll never forget it. Me and my buddies, we used to go to all these shows, right? And I had this buddy, uh, his name was Chris, and he was a bigger guy, and like this dude like he had our backs. Like, in our friend group, like, he played football. He was a lineman. Like, we would go to shows, and, like, he was our protector. But I'll never forget it. Like, I went to a show of this band, a band called As I Lay Dying. Come on, somebody. Anybody. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yep. Jackie's flowing with me this morning. Okay. I went and saw this band. It's like this Christian metal band who actually supposedly was Christian, and then they came out and said they just said that they were Christian so they'd make more money. Uh, Anyway, but that's good. And then there was a whole lot of of other drama. Don't look this band up. You know, I kind of feel ashamed now that I'm saying that I I listen to them. Anyway, uh, we went to the show, right? And I remember it was like the craziest thing. Like, we showed up, and for the first time ever, I found out what crews were. Basically, in the hardcore scene, there's these guys who get together, they're friends, they wear jerseys, and they just, like, come and bully people at shows. Like, you get in the mosh pit, and, like, they're, they're just doing, like, I remember I was, like, standing back, and these guys with jerseys on, these crew guys were, like, spinning around in the mosh pit like, doing, like, theatrical, like, moves with each other. Like, people are, like, jumping off each other's shoulders and stuff. I'm like, this is insane, right? And I'll never forget it. My buddy Chris was, like, he was so, like, he was, like, fearless, right? He stepped in and, like, somebody shoved us the wrong way. Like, show somebody. got kicked out, you know? It was, like, just chaos, right? But I think about this. I think about, like, camaraderie. I think about people in our lives that, like, you, you literally, you have each other's backs. There's such a camaraderie and such a family-type atmosphere where literally you'll do anything for another person. I think about my friend group. I think about people in my life. And I, th- I can't help but think about this idea of people that have each other's backs. But have you ever had somebody in your life who has had your back? Big time, right? The problem, though, is that we surround ourselves in our lives sometimes for people that provide protective value or trust that we, that we have trust with, right? We, we get into relationships. And here's what I understand is, is, is that relationships can sometimes be risky. Because how many guys know that those same relationships that you put trust in, that you maybe you get into because you understand that there's this protective value about that person, that sometimes people stab us in the back, right? That sometimes relationships don't last forever. Whether it's a friend, right? Whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, a spouse, whether it's family members, whether it's worldview and beliefs, right? Our, our friends change. I think about, like, my friend group growing up, like, from, like, elementary school to high school and how it just changed. Like, people change. And sometimes people that you consider your friends transition to a point where it's like you no longer keep connection with those people. Sometimes you have a bad breakup, right, with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You're like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person. Then you experience a season of heartbreak or the pain that comes with divorce, right, and, the, and what happens after divorce, right? Like we, we, sometimes we get into seasons of our life where we just feel like our backs have been stabbed, right? Maybe people that, 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 that you had something in common with or a worldview or a belief that over time that things progressed and things changed in a way where you don't have as much in common with those people anymore and you, you kind of feel like you were stabbed in the back. But the thing that I love is although we're called to be people that, that get into relationship, and I think that sometimes like people approach relationships with like the DTA, don't trust anybody. Like 
Stone Cold Steve Austin is like your slogan or whatever, you know. Anybody? No, nobody. Okay. Nobody watched pro wrestling when they were growing up like I did. Cool. Uh, anyway, uh, but God calls us to a place that we should be trustworthy people, but also trust others, right? I think about God's character, Father, Son, and Spirit, community. Perfect trust that exists in that example of relationships, right? Sometimes we get to a point where we're so callous and cynical about relationships that we begin to follow follow a, a rubric or follow a mindset that says we shouldn't trust. But God calls us to be people that trust because relationships, they are. They're risky. And people are going to fail us time and time again. But here's what I want us to grasp this morning is that even though people fail us, there's a God of the universe who cares for us and he promises to have our back. Even in the midst of the li- messiness of life. So we're going to be looking at a really messy story in Genesis 31 this morning that I think just perfectly portrays kind of the, the realistic scenarios that sometimes family drama brings us, right? We're looking at a story about a character named Jacob. And Jacob is in the lineage uh, of Jesus. And that's what I love about this so much, is that we think about Jesus, we think about royalty, we think about this man who came to earth, and we think about how we hold him as perfect, and we would, you, you, you'd be, you wouldn't be wrong or you wouldn't be, like, persecuted for thinking that, man, this guy's family, this is royalty we're talking about. We're talking about the king of the universe. And you would assume that the lineage that followed before him was one of prestige, right? One of royalty as well. But I love it because the more and more you read the Bible and the lineage of Jesus, you realize that his family line was a mess, right? And we're going to look at a point in his family line in Genesis 31 about this character, Jacob, who is a person in the promised family line of Jesus. But we're going to realize really quickly that this just seems like an episode of Jerry Springer. Come on, somebody. Jerry Springer, anybody? Me as well. I watched a lot of pro wrestling and Jerry Springer, apparently, when I was in middle school. What kind of parents do I have? You know what I'm saying? Uh, Anyway, here we go. Genesis 31. Okay, we're going to be leading into Genesis 31, but I just want to explain Jacob, this character, this situation, uh, because there was a lot of family drama. And Jacob, he was this character. He was your, like, classic underdog. He had a jacked-up family in a way where his mother loved him very much, but his father didn't. His father played favorites and loved the firstborn in their family, Esau, more. So we have this character, Jacob, and his name literally means he deceives. And although he's an underdog, God granted him with this name, almost that was spoken over him, to be a person of deceit, to be cunning, and and to weasel his way and to get things through this idea of deceit because he was an underdog. For instance, the birthright in this culture was promised to the oldest son, Esau. So anyway, Esau comes in, he's like, hard work, he's done a a day of hard work, and he's like, man, I'm famished. And Jacob's basically like, hey, I'll give you a bowl of stew if you trade me for your birthright. Kind of a big deal in the ancient Near East. And and Esau's like, okay, and just does it, right? We see another situation where the blessing, the promised blessing for Esau is when when, when basically their father, Isaac, passes away. He's, He's supposed to lay his hands on his oldest son and give him a blessing that the family line will move on through the promised lineage of what God's going to do through this family, right? Well, it's so funny because using his deceit, once again, Jacob actually sneaks in when the blessing is supposed to give to Esau in the dark, because you know what I mean? They didn't have like lit rooms where it's like, I'm going to give you the blessing. At nighttime, this man who had poor eyes, who was about to die, places his hand on the wrong son, but Jacob did it through deceit and received the blessing of what was to come that God promised. So we see Jacob, this kind of underdog, who's used kind of this title that's spoken over him to become not an underdog, but become one that feels affirmed within the promises of God. But he, but he wrestled with this God. He wrestled with the idea of this God. Is this God trustworthy? And is this God true? 
So in, the, in this lineage, in this promise, he knows that the next step for him is to move to this land called Panoram. And when he gets to Panoram, the whole point of this, his next step is I'm spo- supposed to start a family and I'm supposed to provide for my family. So he gets into this situation where he goes and meets his uncle. And the, uh, his uncle's daughter, Rachel, is this beautiful woman who during this time, many times there's arranged marriages within family. And he saw this beautiful woman, Rachel. He says, I want to marry that woman. What do I need to do? He says to Laban. And Laban says, okay, you got to work for me as a shepherd for seven years. He's like, boom, done. I'm going to work for you. And here's where, once again, family drama. I'm talking about family drama here this morning. After seven years, he works for this man so that he can marry this daughter, Rachel. And on the wedding night, after it's all said and done, they have the wedding, they have the ceremony. Come on. You know what I mean? Like the wedding night's coming. Boom, chicka, wah, wah. Like it's about to happen. And what does, what does Laban do? He swaps out his daughter, Rachel, and puts, and puts in Leah, tags her in, and has Jacob. I don't know how this went down, but it went down. Jacob ends up sleeping with the wrong woman on his wedding night. So he gains a wife that he didn't intend to gain. Come on, family drama. This is in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? And so he's like, I, I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to sleep with the wrong woman. He says, I meant to marry Rachel. He says, okay, you want to marry Rachel? Well, you got to work for me another seven years. So this guy's been deceiving him. His very uncle's been deceiving him. Man, the cards are against him. And then he works another seven years. And after that, he marries Rachel. And he says, okay, it's all said and done. I've worked for you for 14 years to his uncle, right? And he's like, now I just want something in return. I want to start my family. I want to get out of here. And Laban's like, no, I, w- I want you to stay because he was very fruitful. This was one of the best workers. Man, he would, he would be a shepherd and things would multiply. Their resources, they were rich when it came to the ancient Near East. So Laban's like, out of selfish gain, he's like, I don't want this guy to leave and go start his family. Hey, can you stick around and can you work for me? And what do I need to give to you in order to do that? And basically, in humility, Jacob's like, you know what? You don't need to give me anything. Here's what, here's what I want you to do. Take all your speckled sh- sheep, all your spotted sheep, all your striped sheep, all the ones that are kind of bottom of the barrel that, that nobody else wants in, in terms of wealth, the ones that everybody's going to reject, just give me those and I'll work with that. And that way I know that what I earned out of those will be mine. If there's anything other than the ones that are speckled, striped, or spotted, that's, that's yours. So we can just know it's clean cut. So what does Laban do? He's like, okay, we can do that. So he takes all these spotted, speckled, and striped sheep, and he gives them to his sons, and he has Laban, or he has Jacob care for all these sheep that don't even match their criteria. Basically, he moves all these sheep that he says, I'll give to you, and gives them to his son. So he, 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 he literally tries to work him over. And once again, time and time, he's, he's going through persecution. He's working for the daughter he was supposed to marry. Man, underdog, the cards are against him, but it's amazing because God has his back. He ends up caring for these sheep, and God miraculously produces out of these sheep speckled, striped, and spotted sheep. And he's so good at the breeding process that he begins to manipulate, and he begins to deceive the process by allowing the strongest sheep to stay with him, breeding the strongest, while allowing all the weak sheep to go to Laban. So he ends up just multiplying and taking advantage of this situation because of God's grace and the fact that God had his back, and his promises were true for Jacob's life. And that just sets the stage up for us this morning to Genesis 31. So let's dive in here, okay? Are you tracking with me this morning? Yeah, three of us, come on. Here we go. Genesis 31, 1 through 3 is what we're looking at. It says, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. So once once again, like things are not getting good for Jacob. Like, he's not into the greatest situation. He's realizing that, and he's seeing that things are about to get even messier than they've been. Verse 3, it says, then 
the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So God tells him, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to stop sticking around. It's time for the justice to rain down because there's, there's been too much injustice in your life. You're my child. I see you. I affirm you. I believe in you, right? At Jacob's realization, God already had a plan to move forward. And I think about this and I think about our human, us as human beings. Like we're born into this world and we're, really, we're born into a really messy situation. It doesn't take long in our cognitive minds, understanding as we grow up, as we mature, that the world's not as ought it, should, it to be, right? We understand that there's brokenness in our world. We understand that there's pain in our world. We understand that as human beings, we fall short of perfection. This idea, this principle called sin. But here's what I love about God. Even in the realization that the world's not out how it should be, God had a plan. God had our backs in setting a plan into motion and saying, as sin entered the world, guess what? I'm going to set a plan into motion for things to go back to the way that they should be, as they ought to be. I'm going to deal with this issue of sin. When you inherit a situation your life didn't ask for, God already has a plan to move you forward. So this morning, I love this. When you realize the messiness, we've got we to understand this. When we come to grips and we even see and realize the messiness that's coming, Jacob's in this situation, he sees it. People are starting to talk. There's gossip. Man, it's coming for him. When you realize the messiness, here's what we need to understand this morning. God's got your back. God has your back even already in the moments when you just realize and come to grips that things aren't the way that they should be. Some of us maybe are coming to a realization of some certain seasons or things in our lives that are beginning to just kind of weigh down on us. But God wants to remind you this morning, God's got your back. Come on. Let's keep moving. Genesis chapter 31, 4 through 16. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah, so the intended wife and the one he accidentally slept with, there it is, Leah, and to come out to the fields where the flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. God says this, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go to your native land. I love this because we see that the messiness is happening. He's in the middle of it. There's stress. God told him to leave. And now he's got to deal with the fact that he's got this family. It's like, what am I going to do in the midst of this? I understand that, man, I, I have my, my wives basically have this dad who's been really abusive. There's been injustice. But God has persevered. God has, has pulled through. And I love it because there's this reminder that God gives. That he's the God of Bethel, right? And that if we rewind a little bit, a few chapters earlier, we realize that as, as Jacob's traveling, as there's a lot of question marks and unknowns ahead of him, 
that God gives him this revelation of this ladder that we come to know today as Jacob's Ladder. It's a story that some of us are really familiar in the biblical narrative where there's this miraculous ladder and vision that shows angels going up and down the ladder. And prophetically, it kind of prophesies this idea of God's realm and the, and the human realm crashing into one another. A great prophecy that illustrates Jesus and illustrates his kingdom, right? And these, this rule and reign crashing into the rule and reign of earth, right? So there's this amazing thing that, that Jacob gets to experience, and God says, hey, I just want to remind, remind you that I'm real. My glory's real. I'm trustworthy. I'm true. So he sets up an altar, and God calls that place Bethel, also known as the house of God. So I love it. God's reminding Jacob of his faithfulness. He's reminding him of the times past and how to apply the fact that God has his back in these moments. And that's where I want us to grasp next here as, as the second point, that God has our back. And when messiness is happening, in the middle of it all, God's got your back, right? I think about when I, the Bethel moments of my life. I think about when I was a baby. I think about the stories that my parents told me where I almost died. I had a, a nasal infection, and my mom went to go get uh, the prescription for it as, a, as an infant, and they gave me an adult prescription. So after she gave me this medicine, like, I guess my eyes rolled back in my head, like, I almost died. And it's amazing to see the faithfulness of God that he sustained me in the season of life where I wasn't even able or couldn't even comprehend. But it's amazing because out of that situation, we, I ended up getting settlement money when I turned 18. And because of that settlement money, when Callie and I felt the call of God to move here two years ago, that set the stage for us to put a down payment on a house and be able to purchase a house, right? So I'm seeing all these little moments in my life where these Bethel moments where it's like, God, you knew. You're faithful. All these nuances, all the practicalities, all the things that we want to stress out about. But, man, when the mess is happening, when we're like, how is God going to provide for all the question marks in life? Come on. God has your back. Let's keep reading in, in, in verse 14. We're going to back up a little bit. Verse 14, it says this. It says, then Rachel, let's keep going. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Here's what I realized. Here's what we see here is that when God is glorified in the middle of a mess, people get attracted to that. People are attracted to life. People want to follow you. People that you're like, why would my wives want to leave their dad? Go on, like, why? There's all these whys, why, 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 why? But, but I love it. His, his wives are like, no, I see, I see the way that you've been faithful to God. And I want to follow you. I want to follow you there. I think about people that I've, I've been attracted to, leaders in my life. Um, and, and it really kind of encapsulates this idea of people that really reveal to me my heavenly father. Because I had an earthly father that failed me. My biological dad, I don't have a relationship with him. So I was really attracted to people who really pointed me towards my heavenly father. That even though biologically I was fatherless, right, there's a heavenly father and there's people in my life who had certain situations and scenarios that I deeply respect who were able to overcome some of the biological curses of their family line and say, hey, even though this person failed me, there's a God, there's a heavenly father who sees you, who knows you, who cares for you, who has your back in the middle of your mess. Are you a leader in your mess this morning? My earthly father let me down in my life. But my heavenly father has allowed me to have the blessing of being a dad to my son. What a, 
what a beautiful story of redemption. And in the middle of the mess of family, once again, God chooses to have our backs. Amen? Let's keep going. Let's, verse 17. It says this. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove. So there you go. He's going. All his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the, Ar- the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he sneaks off, right? He's like, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. I'm being faithful to what God's telling me to do. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban's chasing down Jacob in the middle of what already is a mess, right? There's, there's a mess that just, get, it, honestly, it's getting messier in the context of Jacob, what he's going through. And there's an added element of adversity that we're seeing. Verse 25, let's keep going. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there too, so they overtake him. They catch up to him. Why'd you leave, right? What are you doing? Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. So Laban starts lecturing him in the context of family. Basically, you're a horrible person. Now I don't get to say goodbye to my grandchildren. I don't get to give you the the deserved exit that you have. I don't get to give you all the formalities of what I wanted to do for you. And he starts guilting him, right? But this is what's what's sometimes so interesting about adversity. Sometimes adversity guilts you in things that are good when God wants to give you things that are good. I truly believe this. Farewell feast, that's a good thing, right? He could have had that, right? Singing and music, that's a good thing, right? Jacob could have had that. Tambourines and harps, it's a good thing. He could have had that. Having the opportunity to let grandpa kiss his grandchildren goodbye, and then his daughters as well. That's a good thing, but coulda, shoulda, woulda. Because here's, here's what happens sometimes. The enemy wants to try to guilt us with good things when we're out of disobedience of pursuing things that are great. He wants to convince us to, to really apply ourselves to the good when, when sometimes God is promising to us something more that looks great. I'll never forget it. Kelly and I were in a season where we were dating, and it was like, man, the good thing to do right now is like we were having trouble. We were up and down. But I knew God was saying, hey, you need to cut this off. And God was like, I'm calling you to a season where you need to grow up. You need to mature a little bit. And you need to let her go. There's things I have for you. There's great things that I have for you. But you know what I wanted to do? Because I wanted to do the things my way. I was like, well, the good thing for me to do is to stay in relationship. We'll just be friends, you know. And time and time again, I tried to play the friend game with Callie. It's like, yeah, we'll just break up. We won't, you know, we won't be that with each other, but we'll just be friends. And you know what it felt like? It felt like I just, my heart was just getting stomped on. Just bam, bam, you know what I mean? It was just like torture over torture over torture. Because I was like, I'm going to do the good thing. 
I'm just going to be the friend, be the good guy, just going to hang out. You know what I mean? When God was like, you need to cut it off because I'm calling you to something greater. You need to get through this season because there's something great I have planned for you. You know what I did? I resisted, I resisted, I resisted until a point where I was so beaten down by the lies of the enemy, by the things that were trying to convince me not to do the great thing that God had called me to, until finally one day I just gave up. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have to be obedient to you, God. I'm going to have to cut this relationship off, even though it seems like a good thing, it seems like a right thing. But God was wanting me to take care of my own heart. He was wanting me to learn something about my own heart in this season of what I needed to do, how he was going to invest in my life in that season in a special way that was great compared to what I classified as good for my life. Verse 29 says this, I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful, this is Laban, not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you longed to return to your father's household, but why did you steal my gods? When we, when we pursue the great things that God has for us, he does miracles. You know what he did for my life? When I actually pursued the great things, I cut it off. We know the end of the story. Kelly and I got married. We are now husband and wife, have a family. Amazing, right? When we begin to actually pursue the great things that God has for us, miracles begin to break out and things that we couldn't have thought possible. But God had to allow me to get into a season where I chose the great things that he wanted to develop in my life in this season. And I love it. Sometimes we have to let the enemy tell on himself. When we begin to feel guilted, by adversity, when we begin to feel guilt creep in, man, let the enemy tell on himself. I love it. Laban, what is he doing guilting him with, I wanted to say bye to my grandchildren and my daughters. You know what he was mad about? The fact that his gods that he worshipped were stolen. The cat got let out of the bag. You can guilt somebody, but the enemy begins to get told on himself when he's like, actually, what I really am ticked off about isn't about all these things that I just guilted you with. It's the fact that somebody stole something that's dear to my heart that I'm worshipping. But God wants us to break through the guilt and understand and see when the enemy is trying to rob us of things that are great. So next thing I want us to understand this morning is that when there's adversity in the middle of messiness, God's got your back. Let's keep going. Verse 31 through 35 here. The story continues. So good. Jacob answered Laban. I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So basically we know that Rachel stole these gods, didn't tell anybody. And now we have Jacob basically being like, hey. If you find anything, you can kill them. You can take them out, right? It's like, you just put your wife's life on the line, you idiot. You know what I mean? It's like, if he finds something, like, that's your wife that you worked 14 years for. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't even know what you're doing and you're agreeing to. Jacob just put his wife's life on the line and says this. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants. But he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Oh, my gosh, what's about to happen? He's going to find the idol. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel saddle and was sitting on them. Here we go. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. It's getting, it's getting messy here. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not 
find the household gods. I love this illustration because it really portrays what God truly thinks about idols. Come on, somebody. There's a pretty vivid illustration that we see in the middle of this of what God thinks about those who are smaller, other gods other than him and how he is meant to be glorified. The perfect visual and God's sense of humor in the middle of this situation where there's a ton of grace. The next thing I want us to grasp this morning is this. Come on. When there's mistakes due to the messiness, God's got your back. You are not going to live a life that's perfect. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be errors that go along the way, but I love it because even in the midst of all that, God gives grace to this messy family situation. Things don't look perfect. There's not perfection in the middle of all this family drama, but God gives them grace even when there's still stolen gods, even when Jacob's life is one that's filled with deceit. Genesis 31, 36 through 42. Let's keep moving. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. Uh, what is my crime? He asked Laban. So not even knowing that he's done anything wrong. He says, how have I wronged you that you hunt me down now that you have searched through all my goods? What have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. I've been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and your goats not... I have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in this daytime and the cold at night and, the, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks. And you changed my wages ten times. Jacob's angry about the injustice that he's endured, which rightly so, and he should be. He's angry about the challenging, or he's challenging Laban's abusive authority as a family member that he's made him endure. There's injustice happening in the life of Jacob. He says, if the God of my father, verse 42, the God of Abraham and the, the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. He's like, I know you. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. He speaks up. He stands out and speaks up against injustice. This is what I want to challenge us this morning. Are we people that just confidentially speak out against injustice? Are we just people that speak out against injustices when it, maybe it's convenient for us? I'll never forget, I, pre I preached it at chapel when I was at, in Bible college, and it's like this big, like, prestigious thing. It's like, students get to preach at chapel, you know. This is like the most nervous I've ever been in my life, you know. I'm like a young preacher. It's like, hey, we'd love for you to speak. Be the student representative. I'm like, I'm terrified. But I really felt God in my spirit. He wanted to address something so practical that was happening on our campus. Like, the show The Office was a big thing at the time, and, like, ever, all the guys on campus, like, loved the joke, well, that's what she said. Anybody ever familiar with this? And I was like, you know what, I don't think that's really a, a way that we as, as men of God, representatives of saying we're people that attend Bible college, are going to be the future leaders of the church, should be like talking to one another. So I remember I addressed it, right? I like was preaching this message and I, and I, I talked about like, hey, as leaders, as people, how we should treat uh, one another, not to mention uh, 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 other women and other people that deserve to be treated by, with respect because of all this stuff. And I'll never forget it. Like, I, I just felt God say to address it and to, uh, to speak up against this injustice. And I'll never forget like afterwards feeling so so bad because there was this big like kind of uproar on social media at the time people were like well i don't agree with this opinion that 
and people started to grumble. People started to attack. People were like, blah, blah, blah. But then, I love it, because there was somebody, there was actually a girl on our campus that actually stood up against all these guys who were like, well, I disagree. And, you know, all these people that were probably feeling convicted that they basically treated people this way that was being confronted. And i never forget it. Like, this girl stood up and became a voice for the injustice and was like, thank you so much for standing up for something that I couldn't speak up for for myself. And he- here's what we need to learn from this, right? But I think it's interesting that sometimes we need to do that. We need to stand in the gap where there's injustice. As Christians, we've been called to be people that do that, that speak up when there's injustice, that not to always keep things confidential, but when their justice needs to be heard, when justice needs to be addressed, we need to be people and Christians that out of our convictions stand up. And I'm going to be really honest. I realize that today in this day and age, the most popular in I- ideas, like, that the most popular thing isn't to stand up for the injustices in a very America-first type of society. But, but, but here's, as, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we've been called to be people that rank the kingdom first. That when it comes to injustices that, that breach the kingdom of God, the kingdom comes higher. And we've been called to be people that stand up for people that can't stand up for themselves. That's a reality, and that's a conviction of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Amen? So here's, here, here's what I love. When there's injustice because of messiness, God's got your back. When we need to stand up, when maybe it's not always the most popular opinion, we got to stand up for people that don't stand up, can't stand up for themselves. we got to advocate for people that don't have the ability to advocate for themselves. That's the realities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And when we choose to stand up, guess what? God's going to have your back, and you will be vindicated because, man, God's going to allow those people to be vindicated because of our obedience to stand up in the midst of injustice. But that's what we've been called to as followers of Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 43. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now. Let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagger, Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, the heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galid. It was also called Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are far away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters... Or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap, and here is the pillar I have set up between you and me. This, uh, this heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will go p- not go past the heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. I love this because we see injustice. We see people getting mad and angry about injustice. But then we see reconciliation. A fist fight didn't break out, which it could have. Because that's sometimes the way that people feel like they need to deal with things, right? Rather than injustice and pain leading to something that could have brought on violence, reconciliation happened. As a representative of God's promises, as Jacob's gotten to know this God that he's chosen to follow, as God proven has proven his promises to be true, he chooses to be a representative of God on the basis of forgiveness and on the basis of love. 
when there's reconciliation needed because of the messiness, God's got your back. Reconciling with somebody, someone who's offended you, loving our enemies isn't the easiest thing to do, but I love it. God proves that, man, when there's reconciliation needed where there's division, God is going to have your back in the middle of it. Amen? So as we close this morning, life is messy. Sin is messy. We're, we're led into this story of understanding this is the family line of Jesus. And once again, it, it seems all over the place. And this morning, I know there's people in the room, you, you might have disqualified yourself already just because of your circumstances where you're saying, well, my life's too much of a mess. Life's too messy. But I love it because the messy line of Jacob eventually led to the birth of Jesus Christ. The perfect one. Through that lineage that people might have expected to be one of pure royalty and perfection, real life happened. Real life hit. And we have the awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the sacrificial lamb. I want to end on this verse this morning, Romans 5, 6. It says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I just, I've, I've been broken, where I felt powerless, where I've realized, man, circumstances feel like they're getting the best of me. And that's what happens when, when, when sin begins to kind of overwhelm us. When the world and understanding the curse of sin, the world isn't the way it should be, begins to overtake us. But Christ came and he died for that very reason. And we're not gods ourselves. But because of sin, we've proven that we don't measure up time and time again. We're not perfect. We fall short of God's perfect glory. But God set in, a mess, uh, set in motion a plan at just the right time. While we're still understanding and dealing with the fact that sin is a, a real issue. But Jesus, he died for us. And I want us to end on this. God's resolution to the messiness of sin is Jesus. We might find ourselves in life situations that are messy. We might be anticipating things ahead of us. Man, we need to understand that God's got our back. But most of all, God cares for our souls. He wants our life to be on the trajectory. One that deals with the deepest, deepest place in our hearts and our souls. Dealing with the state of our souls. Dealing with the way that sin and imperfection has tarnished our life and he wants to give us a new life. God has our back because he's so trustworthy and true and he set a plan into motion to redeem us, to reconcile us, and to set us in a way where we can be world changers, changers in the current state of the world as it is today. But would you and I be willing to embrace that, embrace the mess, embrace where we find ourselves today and understand in the midst of all that, God has our back. And ultimately, God cares for us so much that he's willing to cover us. He's willing to offer us his life so that we can lay our lives down like he did to serve others and to make a difference and an impact in this world that God loves so much.